these signals bounce all around the earth. And with a really simple radio, with a $20 radio, I could probably stand outside and receive signals from all over the world wirelessly without an app, you know, with no subscriptions or anything at the speed of light. This is real time radio. And that, to me, is the most fascinating thing about shortwave radio. It's been around forever, but people have kind of forgotten its amazing ability. Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein, and I'm joined by Jennifer Waits. Hello. And today we're talking about a piece of radio magic that I didn't even know was possible. I'm so excited about today's conversation with Thomas Witherspoon, who writes online at uh, Shortwave Listener Post. That's the name of his website. And... Thomas has built a radio time machine there online. He's going to tell us all about it. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing the the concept of a radio time machine with me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love these radio mysteries, and I love things that uh, when I am presented with the concept, I have a hard time even figuring it out. Like, that's the best kind of story yeah. to delve into. And um, and and Thomas's project is, is just amazing, like providing this context for radio all of the radio on the dial at any given time yeah it turns out you can spin the dial on a virtual radio as if you were tuned into a radio from the past and you can spin the dial and listen to radio stations and um, we'll get into just how far back you're allowed to travel in this literal time machine and we're also going to talk today on radio survivor about shortwave it's you know thomas witherspoon is an expert in the world of shortwave radio And so that's all coming up today. So we're on the line with Thomas Witherspoon, who is a self-professed radio anthropologist and founder and curator of the Radio Spectrum Archive, founder and curator of the Shortwave Audio Archive, and a a shortwave enthusiast generally. Thomas, we're, we're so excited to talk to you about a number of your projects. Well, thank you so much. It's an honor for me to be here. So what what piqued our interest today was that you're working on something that purports to be a time machine for radio. And it's so magical and, and mysterious at the same time. I wanted to see if you could explain it. It's the Radio Spectrum Archive. Can you tell us, I guess, in very simple terms, what is the Radio Spectrum Archive and how is it a time machine for radio? Okay, so most of the uh, archived audio that we hear, like off-air recordings or uh, broadcast audio from the past, like, you know, uh, what NBC sounded like the day Pearl Harbor, uh, Hawaii was tacked, uh, uh, you know, when a election results rolling in uh, that you hear from different uh, broadcasters uh, in the past, those are audio recordings of a specific frequency at a specific time, you know, highlighting a specific broadcaster. It's just an audio recording, uh, just like a podcast. What a spectrum recording is, is instead of recording just one frequency, one broadcaster, it's recording an entire broadcast band all at once. So instead of recording, um, 640 AM, you can record the entire AM broadcast band all at once. So you're basically recording all of the signals in there, all of the broadcasters, all of the music, all of the news, and even the noise in between the stations as it's you're recording radio and in sort of its natural form. Wow. And what are what are all the spectrums that that people could record? So you mentioned AM could be recorded all at once. Like what else is out there that you could capture in its entirety? 
Well, hypothetically, uh, anything on, you know, any radio, uh, you can record uh, swatches of, of frequency. So the AM broadcast band and the shortwave radio bands are some of the easiest to record because they're fairly narrow bandwidth compared to, say, FM broadcast radio. To put it in perspective, you know, like uh, the AM broadcast band goes from somewhere around 500 kilohertz up to, say, uh, 1700 kilohertz. That's not a a large piece of spectrum compared to the FM broadcast band, which may be from 89.7 megahertz to, you know, 108 megahertz the FM broadcast band's exponentially larger, but you definitely can make a recording of it as well. In fact, there are uh, pieces of equipment now that can do that pretty easily. Hmm. And Thomas Witherspoon, I imagine that this technology of recording an entire radio spectrum all at once has only been available for like the last 10 years or so with, with digital computer technology. But am I right with that guess? You're right. Um, so I, I would say that commercially, and you know, governments have have had equipment that does this. They've had it for quite a long time, but they were using large computers, very uh, specialized equipment. They've been doing this a lot longer, but sort of the average Joe, you know, uh, just a consumer can go out now and buy a software defined radio and have been able to, you said about 10 years, that's about correct. Uh It's a little bit longer than that, but not much longer. And what's a software uh, defined radio? So a software-defined radio is is like one of the most boring-looking radios you could ever see in your life. Um, it's basically like a little black box. It looks like an external hard drive or something. You hook it up to your uh, computer, and essentially what happens is, you know, historically, like if you had a high-end commercial-grade uh, receiver, um, it may be this big rack-mounted thing with all these buttons and knobs and things on it and probably cost upwards of ten or $20,000. A software-defined radio uses the power of, of your computer to do a lot of the signal processing. So there's hardware in the box. There's receiver hardware in the box. But basically all of the heavy lifting is done by the computer. And since uh, computers can process things rather quickly, and this is really not... It's kind of low-hanging fruit for a computer. It's not very processor-intensive for the most part. You know, uh, software-defined radios open up this this huge world of, of radio where you can actually, on a, on a computer, on your monitor, instead of just listening to signals, you can actually see all of the signals that are yeah. out there all at once. They're all represented wow. on a little spectrum display. So a software-defined radio is a, is a newfangled available a piece of technology that also allows you to record for later spinning of the dial all the radio that's that's available where you are. Correct. It's wow. sort of so you know uh, software defined radios are sort of like any other radio. They're built to receive certain frequencies. So you may have one that only receives the high frequencies. You know shortwave radio, um, AM broadcast band. Then you have others that are wideband that may cover anything from one kilohertz to five gigahertz. Um, there, there are lots of different software-defined radios out there, and they're they're pretty cheap. Actually, now you can get a really, really nice uh, software-defined radio for about one hundred dollars. And where where um, do you find one? And who who are the people? You know, we know a lot about radio here, and and this is all new information to me. So I'm curious, who are the people buying software-defined radios, and how are they using them? So uh, you know, the people I'm in touch with most are radio enthusiasts. So shortwave radio listeners, ham radio operators, um, and makers, hackers, you know, people that are interested in what all you can see out there. Because all of a sudden with a software-defined radio, 
not only can you see broadcasts like your local broadcaster, um, your local FM station, you can see their signal. You can see the HD carriers here in the United States um, for mm. the iBox stuff. Um, but also you can see people's wireless doorbells. You can see um, the uh, tire pressure sensors on people's cars. You know, if you're in that frequency range, you'll see those little signals uh, in your spectrum display. Well, that's, wow. Uh, that's, because that's fascinating. That's uh, there's some uh, isn't it wild? There's some it's... black hat and some white hat ideas right in there. <laughs> well, but also I can exactly. also think of that aside. It also makes me think of transmission <laughs> artists. Uh, you know, we've talked to people from Wave Farm, and and they have yes. all kinds of transmission artists who do artist in residence. Right. Um, Wave Farm and they call is, it a, is a transmission art. Wave Farm for our listeners is an affiliate of the Radio Survivor Program, a radio station in upstate New York. That's also. Uh, devoted to transmission art to the art that's possible um over the airwaves yeah and they and they say transmission art rather than radio art because uh, it, it can include all the things that you're mentioning thomas like anything that's utilizing radio waves yeah there's a lot so of possibilities I, well my head is exploding and thomas witherspoon <laughs> you've you have you've chosen one possibility for these software defined radios you've you've built something special because this technology exists yeah, so uh, you know, uh, it's something that I, I couldn't get my mind off of when I first discovered software-defined radios. So, uh, one of the hats I wear is I blog about a radio on my uh, blog, the SWLing Post, and I write reviews. I do beta and alpha testing of radio equipment a lot. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of things come across my desk, and. When I first discovered software-defined radios, I thought, wow, these, this is really cool. I can see all these signals. You know, there's so many tools for cleaning up a signal um, mm. when I want to listen to something. You know, it allows me to um, really experiment with uh, the spectrum a little bit. But the record button, which a lot of people didn't pay any attention to at all, um, it, it's kind of cool. It's an, it's an interesting thing to think about. So what, what the way a software-defined radio uses the antenna information it's sort of like your antenna is picking up analog information it's picking up rf from the air and as soon as it 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 touches the antenna and goes into the software defined radio the and i'll call this an sdr that's what we usually call them sure for the acronym but uh, as soon as the sdr has that signal it can do one of two things it can process that signal it use it live and it's like tuning a live radio or it can take that data, which it does anyway, and does a, an immediate analog to digital conversion. And so it'll basically take all of the information that's coming off the antenna and digitize it. Wow. And it turns it into this raw kind of data file. And uh, that raw data file ends up being a spectrum recording because the SDR doesn't care if it's getting the information off of the antenna or if it's getting it from a hard drive. It, it could care less. It's the same data. It's just the antenna data. So, so what you're describing is that somewhere in the bowels of this piece of software, you can, you can hear the radio. You can hear all of the radio. Again, you can pull it back out, the content. Yes. Yeah. It makes sense that this piece of technology exists, but I think both Jennifer and I are a little bit gobsmacked. We had no idea. I know. <laughs> well, so. and so is it easy for the general public to make one of these recordings if they have the software-defined radio? Absolutely. You can make one. You know, I usually suggest to people that they start out with 
there's a like a one hundred dollar receiver I really like uh, from a company called SDR Play. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're actually designed and built in the United Kingdom, and uh, they are little small uh, black box SDR that works with about any kind of uh, computer. You plug it into your computer. And as long as you've got some hard drive space, and you will need some, depending on how wide of a recording you're making, um, as long as you've got the hard drive space, you can record um, Spectrum and play it back later. You can do whatever you want to with it. Uh, but on the on the note about hard drives, so so you know, here's one use I, I, I use. The anthropologist in me is fascinated with potential use of spectrum recordings in the future, like uh, media studies specialists, yeah. anthropologists, historians, you know, all those people and, and you know, places like the National Archives. Um, so right. uh, when you have these uh, recordings of a moment in time, um, I think there's a lot of interesting, there's more context in that than you would get from just looking at what was on the internet of a given day. You know, um, you're hearing live things. So, uh, for example, I just recorded the midterm elections on the AM broadcast band. I recorded wow. uh, quite a few hours the day before. I recorded wow. almost the entire day of the elections all the way into the next day. And I've done this since 2012. And that's personally. an extremely so, local. Um, I mean, everyone's radio spectrum is so hyper local. So you're the one that you recorded is exactly is there in um, local to North Carolina. We need uh, we need one person in every in every town and city doing a software defined radio spectrum recording I couldn't agree with during you more. the elections. Yes. Wow. Uh, is exactly. That is that something you try to do? Like, were you trying to recruit people during the election, for example, um, recruit people around the country to do recordings? So, so we have a small team of, uh, of people on my, uh, on the, Radio Spectrum Archive. And uh, these are all people, you know, radio enthusiasts who were also interested in Spectrum recordings mm-hmm. that I've just found in the community. Uh, so a lot of them were doing recordings during this time. The interesting thing, though, to me is so, like, with I could go back to the 2012 uh, election and I can, uh, you know, turn on my uh, SDR, pull up that recording and start listening to it. And I can tune through like everywhere on the broadcast band. So you'll get like these, uh, I don't know, you'll get like conservative stations, progressive stations. You'll get sports stations that don't mention a yeah. thing about the elections. Right. You'll get uh, community stations playing some awesome music. And during the day, you know, you hear mostly the local stations. But then at nighttime, you know, the AM broadcast band kind of, it livens up because you get these signals from all over the place when the uh, signal bounces off of the ionosphere. So I'll hear stations out of Chicago, New York, Canada, you know, uh, all over the Eastern part of North America very easily. Um, And so it's, it's interesting to hear, you know, as people are predicting things, you know, just, just in terms of an election recording, just to kind of hear what people are saying um, they think is going to happen and then what actually happens. And you can hear that, that live reaction um, right. as results roll in. And, and so it's, you know, it's been, um, uh, that's just sort of one area. I also try to do spectrum recordings when there's just a really heavy news day. Uh, now, doing a spectrum recording of the AM broadcast band, I'm, I'm kind of estimating here, but to put it in perspective, I think each one-hour recording probably uses about um, 80 gigabytes of hard mm-hmm. drive space, something like that. Wow. So you can chew through hard drives very quickly, and it's for that yeah. reason I have about 65 terabytes of hard drives here at my house. Any, and, anyone who um, plays with video 
uh, on their computer, though, starts yeah. having to think in these terms. So, wow. So what does that mean, ultimately, for the Radio Spectrum Archive? You know, does that physically exist anywhere beyond your house? And, and how do you, how do you yeah. imagine this massive archive existing somewhere? So I'm glad you asked this, Jennifer. So <laughs> I've had, you know, I've had people together for years, um, uh, basically a, a little team of people. We would meet once a year at this uh, uh, radio enthusiast gathering in Philadelphia. Uh, it usually happens in late winter uh, called the SWL Fest. And it's mostly people who kind of historically have been interested in shortwave radio, but there's a lot more that goes on there. Um We've had, I mean, just tons of different groups that come there and talk about radio uh, from every angle. And um, I would meet and talk with these people. I've got a friend from Australia who's really into doing uh, Spectrum recordings as well. And we would kind of trade hard drives. He would come with a hard drive full of stuff from Australia. I'd give him a hard drive full of things from North Carolina. But we wanted a place to put it. And I started doing research uh, last summer. Like, uh, you know, hard drives eventually die. And I've got all valid hard drives right now, to my knowledge, and I need a place to dump this stuff. And I started doing, I, I just thought, you know, what if I just fund this myself and just figure out a place to put it and kind of put it on cold storage? Well, even cold storage, when you're talking about 150 terabytes of data in the cloud, that is some serious money, like, you know, probably somewhere between two to $3,000 a year. And that's assuming that no one's really messing with that data a lot, not pulling it down or pushing up new data. Right. Um, that's just kind of cold storage. And um, so I got an opportunity this past year. I was invited to speak on a digital curation panel uh, with the Radio Preservation Task Force um, at the Library of Congress. And it kind of gave me a, a place to introduce people to the Radio Spectrum Archive. And what I loved about it was, um, you know, there were all these experts uh, in um archiving and broadcast history um, and media, you know, that were there, uh, people with public broadcasters, with um, LPFM stations. I even met people that were into unlicensed radio, you know, that were there and, and really preserving the history of all these things, preserving yeah. the audio. And um, I gave a, a presentation where I introduced the concept of spectrum recordings. And it was actually kind of interesting because I, there's a group, I don't know, 150 people or something in this room. Professional um, archivists, this, all of them. I mean, in one way or another. That's exactly right. It was the who's who. I mean, I felt so incredibly honored. I, I was sitting there at the panel up front, and I've got these really prestigious people sitting next to me, and I'm just this guy, right? And I was trying to think, how do I introduce myself to this group? You know, I'm not an academic. Uh, <laughs> radio anymore. And Yeah, that's what I said. That I thought, that's a great title, actually. I'll just leave it as radio anthropologist. Actually, you know, in truth, so I'm into radio, but I did my uh, graduate studies at the London School of Economics focused on social anthropology. Mm. So uh-huh. I kind of feel like it's a value. Um, a valid uh, hook there. You've got but, the diploma to, um, to, to, to hang the title on. I do. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll show that to anybody. And um, so, yeah, I, I basically started talking because the panelists were talking about projects they're working on currently with their institutions or, or programs. And so I brought up the Radio Spectrum Archive and I asked the people in the room, you know, how many people here knows what a radio spectrum recording is? And out of this group of experts, there were only two people that raised their hands. And I, I think it, it was my friend, David Gorin, who um, is on the Spectrum Archive team, um, and the guy sitting next to him. Uh, that was it. And 
so I showed them a video of a spectrum recording that I made and a, a kind of a unique spectrum recording because I, I wanted to show one that would have some meaningful impact to archivists. So this was a recording and, and, and it's interesting you were talking about video recording and how, you know, how much space those take. Yeah. Well, back in the late eighties, radio enthusiasts who like chasing these distant signals that would come across the Atlantic and stuff. And uh, it was called DXing, which means you're working and logging and sometimes getting reception reports from distant stations. Uh, they were really heavy into it on the AM broadcast band. And at the top of the hour, when stations would do their IDs, they would be able to hear and identify stations. But <laughs> having a why they do station a, IDs. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, so... You know, uh, a typical DXer can only listen to one frequency at a time. Yeah. Well, some crafty people decided, you know, what if I recorded the intermediate frequency of my receiver onto a Hi-Fi VCR? Because the Hi-Fi VCR at the time had enough analog bandwidth to do that, to record most of the AM broadcast wow. band. So it was, it, it was, so an, they would, it was an analog – wow. It was, a, it was, it was the yes. beginning of, of having more uh, storage on hand – for information, and this is in like the the mid to late eighties. I love it. Yeah, correct. And and uh, so these guys, and you know, they had nothing in their minds other than you know they just wanted to log their stations. They weren't thinking about news events or anything like that. They were they, they wanted to do their DXing, and uh, so we have uh, the recording I played for them was made on a Hi Fi VCR May first of nineteen eighty six. And again, only because that was just a good day to pick up distant stations. It wasn't because of the news that was going on. But I played them a recording of this, just tuning through. It was like a screencast of, of me tuning through the Spectrum recording. And what was fascinating was I, I probably have five stations on there that no longer exist. Mm -hmm. But you could tune to it and hear it live. President Reagan himself says, even with the vast resources available to the United States, there is no way of knowing just how bad the Chernobyl nuclear plant disaster really is. And, wow. and it, it really feels like time travel. Yeah. And, and that was only a few days after the Chernobyl incident. We were just starting up the space program after the Challenger incident. All those things were mentioned. We've been monitoring these broadcasts since Tuesday, and there's been absolutely no mention of anything connected to an ex a nuclear accident. The Siberian people and, don't know anything about it. And it, it really feels like time travel. So again, that had some pretty major impact, you know, for these uh, archivists. And I, I mean, I've gotten so many requests to speak at other conferences and things after this, because for them, you know, for radio enthusiasts, this has been around forever, but to archivists that, that concept just blew their minds. Yeah, and it really is. The what dream. Was, well, it does. I mean, it's I watching that video completely blew my mind because it really, you know, watching a video of tuning into a dial. I mean, it's almost like being in a movie from 1986 or something yeah. where, and, and it really helps explain this concept, which is, is sort of arcane, you know, the whole idea of a radio spectrum recording is is very confusing for those of us that aren't uh, technologists. And, and I think that video really brings to light just how incredible it is that somebody figured out how to do that. Yeah, it, it, I mean, they were, those recordings were just 
they blow my mind to listen to them now. We and uh, the fellow who originally made those um, early Spectrum recordings, Mark Connolly, he's been kind enough to digitize a lot of them, so we can listen to them pretty much in any SDR application, which is the program that mm-hmm. makes an SDR work, the piece of software that lives on your machine. Uh, but the great thing about the conference was afterwards, I you know I got a lot of business cards. Uh, someone uh, from the Wikimedia Foundation got in touch with me and said, "You need to talk to the Internet Archive." Yeah, this, and this is yeah. <laughs> It was like right up their alley, you know, um, and so just within within a month, uh, he had a meeting, like a routine meeting with them and brought this up and they contacted me and they said, we like what you're doing. You can have all the space you want. Wow. And um, so they they're creating a special collection for us. It actually so they you know, they have um, sort of benchmarks you have to meet in order to have a, a a separate special collection of Ooh. recordings. High status normally, internet archive. The, the upper echelons go, yeah. of the internet archive. Now now we're talking. That's so funny. Yeah, that can be on my business card, you know. And uh, But it's great. It's a, it's a great idea because they basically say, you know, you need to have enough capacity here that we have yeah. a proper collection. Well, Spectrum Recordings, some of these things are like, you know, 250 gigabytes large. And I live in a very rural part of North Carolina, have the worst internet that you can imagine. Like, mm. I mean, it's it's really bad. And so the hoops I have to jump through just to get a recording up there, I, I use, you know, uh, I network into other PCs that are in places with good uh, internet oh, wow. connections where I have a hard drive hooked up so I can remotely upload things. And some other people on our team are doing that. But we're getting very close now to actually having built up enough capacity that we'll have our own collection there on the Internet Archive. Mm. But, but they just made, and just like one... One phone conversation, they made the entire thing possible. That's wow! Hooray for the the Internet Archive. Um, we're on the line. With, oh yeah, we're on the line with Thomas Witherspoon, radio a radio lover and a writer at <laughs> SWL Ing Post. That's SWLing dot com, and we're talking about Thomas's special project, which is a, a radio survivor's dream come true. We're still kind of. I don't know if I fully believe that this is real. Uh, I might pinch myself <laughs> and wake up from the dream. Uh, it's called spectrumarchive.org, and it's the idea that there has been technology for quite some time that allows um, people who, who, who have a special piece of box, a special thing that they can connect to a radio that can record all the radio at once, which then can be played back on this other special piece of software. You can tune the dial in time. This reminds me when I was a, a young kid and my dad brought home an antique uh, television set and I thought it was so cool but what really should happen is when I turn on this antique television set from the early 50s like it should only get it was like the weirdest thing that we turned it on and there it was like TV from the 90s was coming through yes. the, the old box. And I was like that's not what I wanted. What I wanted is <laughs> to turn this thing on and to turn the dial up and down the dial and watch TV from the fifties. And then, you know, that's just a dream that a kid has, but here it turns out that is at least a radio. Um, some of this has exists. So, so you mentioned Thomas Witherspoon, uh, a recording of the entire AM dial from the Eastern coast of the United States. I think in 1986, is that the earliest yes. spectrum archive? in existence as far as you know so i'm digging through a few more of those uh recordings that mark had uh made i think it's one of the earliest ones he made 
he made them mostly in the Boston market and in Providence, Rhode Island. Okay. So that's where those are. And I'm trying to find other people. There were other uh, DXers who did this and, and kind of in the radio enthusiast group at the time, you know, because if I would have known about this, right, I, in, in 1986, that would have just blown my mind completely. And yeah. I would have been trying to do that at home as well. Um, but, uh, you know, in the radio enthusiast world, um, a lot of people were saying, well, you know, that's not really DXing. You're going back and listening to a recording of something that you made. <laughs> that's not really oh, DXing. Oh, it's so cheating. It kind they of have got, rules. It kind of got, yeah, it kind of got poo-pooed a little bit. And so, uh, you know, I think a lot of people who are making those recordings kind of stopped doing it because. <gasps> um, <laughs> so it was like a, it was like a and, dirty secret for them. It was, you know, it for some people, you know, um, uh, other people didn't take it very seriously. But at the time, you know, there were kind of standards for how you uh, log a station, what's considered to be uh, logging a station from, I don't know, Finland or something that you hear in the East Coast of the United States. Right, because um, they were and, like, they were mm-hmm. kind of in competition. They were like, it was a status symbol to, to hear something from so far away. So if you're using a piece of technology to hear the furthest station you're not you're not as awesome as someone who who did it with the I think with, of it I think of it a little bit like what it must be like when we first had instant replay for sporting events yeah you know like <laughs> like who makes the call then like you know uh we can replay this and live we didn't see all this detail uh, but when you can replay it like 13 times in a row, you kind of catch all the nuances of what was happening in the game. And the same thing was for these weak stations, because the radio could just it could receive what it could receive. You know, uh, making a spectrum recording doesn't make it a better radio, but you can go back later and listen to it over and over again. And the filter that is in between your ears can kind of pick out stuff that you wouldn't have heard live. Wow. And yeah, that's um, great. so. Yeah, it's uh, so that was kind of the irony, but that's probably the earliest I would expect a spectrum recording uh, to be floating around. Um, I I do kind of wonder. Um, I've spoken to a lot of people who said, "Oh, you know, the the government 80s. has." Uh, yeah, correct. Exactly. And people say, "Oh, the government have probably had uh, recordings like this for a long time." And I've spoken to people who worked in branches of the government where they could have been into this sort of thing, but they kind of say, yeah, you know, this technology has been around a long time, but we don't really keep that stuff. Like we don't really keep, we, we don't have a lot of interest in keeping that data um, hmm. unless there's some, a big event, you know, uh, that's happened. But I would hope at some point, maybe there's some recordings floating around out there that we could grab that, um, you know, been made by governments and things. Some, and, yeah. and it, like 50 as, years as from now, they'll unlock the, the cold war spectrum archive from Eastern exactly. Europe. Exactly. We'll actually be able to spin the dial uh, right there in well, Czechoslovakia and hear the whole radio dial. Um, but and so well, the government 20, angle twenty sixty three or something. Sorry, Jennifer. Go ahead. The government the government mm-hmm. angle is making me think. Um, you know, you've gotten some nice press for your radio time machine, and and some folks have mentioned that if you're if you're scanning through a spectrum archive, maybe of a shortwave of shortwave radio, you might pick up cool things like number stations. Yeah, it's, is it time or, for us yes. to dig deep in the shortwave? Uh, radio Survivor, the program that you're listening to now, um, I, I think we've glanced off the topic of shortwave before, but I know next to nothing except for the fact that it exists and that it travels farther than the radio dials that we're used to on the commercial radios, FM and AM. Um, is it time for us to start from square well, one I, with what shortwave? I think we're going to dig a little bit in... Right now, since okay, we have an expert. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and I'll, is that I'll where take numbers... you down the rabbit hole. 
Okay. <laughs> Take us down the rabbit hole. We'll do our and, best. And is that where number stations exist, is on shortwave? Mm, number stations, the mysterious number stations. Yes, yes. Um, in fact, I, it's funny. I was making a, a little recording of a spectrum. Uh, I, I was recording off of a spectrum file uh, as an example recently, and, and there was a number station, a Cuban number station that was right there in my recording that I, I wouldn't have run across otherwise. And uh, yeah, so shortwave radio, the, the quick kind of in a nutshell uh, version yeah. of what it is. I, I no, speak with no a lot of people about details, it. Just, uh, just explaining <laughs> it to, to kindergartners. So basically, uh, most of the devices, uh, most of the wireless devices in our world work off of something called line of sight propagation, which means you basically have to have line of sight to the device that's transmitting and receiving a signal. So like your cell phone, uh, if you've ever been in a mountainous area, you may be talking to somebody on the phone, you go around a corner, uh, uh, all of a sudden there's a mountain between you and the cell phone tower and your call drops. Uh, that's because line of sight propagation, you were in the shadow of that signal and it, it couldn't reach you. Uh, satellite signals that people get, like you know, um, satellite radio that they listen to in their car, that's line of sight. You have a satellite out there, it's broadcasting a signal down, and you could potentially you could take a little laser and point it and probably uh, point it at the satellite if you could do that. I mean, it's going to be directly line of sight. Shortwave radio operates on a totally different principle called skywave propagation. And what happens is you have this uh, transmitter site, um, uh, a radio broadcast site. They um, broadcast a signal, and depending on the frequency and the time of day, they can basically make that signal go pretty much anywhere in the world that they want it to because the signal leaves Earth and it bounces off of the ionosphere and comes back down to Earth. So the ionosphere acts like this little... Uh, kind of enclosure for signals around the planet. And uh, so these signals bounce all around the Earth. And with a really simple radio, with a $20 radio, you could take me to, I don't know, uh, the, the South Pole Station, research station. I could probably wow. stand outside and receive signals from all over the world wirelessly, without an app, you know, with no subscriptions or anything, at the speed of light. You know, this is, this is real-time radio. And that, to me, is the most fascinating thing about shortwave yeah. radio. It's been around forever, but people have kind of forgotten its amazing ability, you know. So, yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm going to guess, I'm just going to guesstimate it's been uh, almost 100 years of shortwave radio. Can yes. Can I do that um, on Radio Survivor today without embarrassing myself? <laughs> do, do you have, like, do you have to meet a certain percentage of accuracy for your podcast? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have allowed like myself slightly less or... than Paul Reese Mendel. I'm allowed. I'm allowed a little <laughs> more childlike speculation. Did shortwave radio begin around the same time as AM radio? Yeah. So basically, shortwave radio started out. It, it was sort of one of the earlier goals of uh, radio was to broadcast, you know, to ships at sea and across continents to have a, a wireless way to transmit, you know, messages and things. Um, at first, they didn't know how to do it. You know, they, they didn't know how to modulate uh, a signal to make it work. Um, and so they were all over the place with frequencies, but they tended to be very low frequencies with very long wavelengths. Um, eventually, like probably, I'm guessing like toward the end of the, the teens and into the 20s of the uh, 1900s, mm -hmm. um, people quickly discovered, mostly a lot of ham radio operators discovered that the frequencies above... Um, 
you know, 3000 kilohertz actually were really good carriers of uh, signals for long distances. And so most of the shortwave spectrum today, most of the broadcasters float somewhere between the bulk of them, somewhere between about 5000 kilohertz and uh, like 18,000 kilohertz, somewhere in there. And And the higher frequencies. Thomas Witherspoon, we we have a good I mean, people listening to this show, I'm sure, have a very clear idea of what is on the AM dial of their radios, what is on the FM dial. But uh, is there an easy way to describe what is on shortwave radio uh, these (laughs) days and how is it different from what was on shortwave radio in the past? So I think one of the the great things about uh, shortwave radio for for years, for decades, it was a Cold War broadcasting medium, basically. shortwave broadcasters tended to be the mouthpieces of their government, like Radio Moscow, um, uh, I don't know, Radio Berlin International uh, in East Berlin. Um, The Voice of America still broadcasts today, the BBC, Deutsche Welle, uh, Radio France International, um, uh, those last three broadcasters, they still broadcast today on shortwave. So um, in the past, it was kind of like an international medium for broadcasting uh, multilingual content usually to tell uh, countries telling the rest of the world what they do or telling them what they want them to believe that they do uh, in their country. It's been a great propaganda medium uh, for that very reason. It crosses borders with a shortwave radio. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I love about shortwave radio too because someone could be living, you know, under a repressive regime and a shortwave radio doesn't give... It doesn't. Yeah, exactly. North Korea. You could be in North Korea and unless someone heard you listening to the radio, there's no way to trace that you're listening to a station. Whereas, you know, if you're looking, if you have an Internet connection, then, yeah, that's totally traceable. Um, But forever, it's been this kind of secret way, um, kind of covert way that you could listen to stations. Yeah, it's like like uh, private reading. You know, it's like it's very it's very one. It's it's a one. It's a one to one private moment of um communication and that's where the exactly. number stations come in right because <laughs> jennifer wants to talk about our yes stations. well right because so we they're spy stations right like, you could probably explain yes. this to us thomas so number stations um have been around you know since their early days of the cold war uh, just after world war ii really um and during world war ii actually there were versions of number stations because we had to send coded messages you know across mm-hmm. borders um, the great thing about it is, um, especially until recently, um, it was hard to, to to figure out where a broadcaster was broadcasting on the HF bands. You had kind of a vague idea, but it wasn't as easy as finding an FM station um, or something that's a little higher in frequency. So basically, broadcasters could never claim that they were making these uh, announcements, these number station um, uh, broadcasts, but uh, they basically... It's kind of the flip opposite of what other international broadcasters did. They would put out a show and they would hope that hundreds of thousands of listeners were listening and all getting that message. But number stations were countries and entities putting out a broadcast to the entire world. Anybody could listen to, but they only had an audience of one, of maybe one or a handful of operatives in other countries. As near as we can tell. And And for people who have never heard one... What what is what does it sound like if you happen upon a number station? 
So number stations typically, uh, especially during the Cold War, they would have what's called an interval signal, which was a little ditty that they'd play at the very beginning of the broadcast. So people on analog radios would know, like an operative who uh, was at some hideout somewhere, they could figure out that they were on frequency listening to the broadcast they were supposed to hear. So it'd be just a little ditty that they would recognize. And then there would be a preamble um, where they would probably there'd be a string of uh, the same three numbers over and over again. They would say five, nine, three, five, nine, three, you know, they would do that for a little while. And that's telling the operative to pull out their one-time use pad for decoding. And this was a paper pad that they would burn the paper as soon as they used it. And the, the key, the encryption key was only used one time ever. And that's it, when people uh, wouldn't get rid of their pad afterwards or would try to recycle stuff, that's when they would get in trouble. If you just used a, that one key that one time, it was about impossible to decipher the codes for anybody else who was listening. But they would listen to these numbers. There would be a preamble that would tell them the sheet to go to in their pad. Then they'd start copying the numbers. And then the numbers would usually be in sets of five. You know, they would say, you know, two, nine, five, six, eight. And then they would repeat that number twice so people would make sure they got a good copy and um, then they would move on to the next number and then they could take that that one-time pad and decipher the message and um, it's a kind of a fascinating way to do it and it's so clever and so anonymous uh, and untraceable that they're still used today uh, just there are less of them but they're they're still used today and Thomas Witherspoon is there this is not just conspiracy theory some people have documented uh, verifiably that that's this is what number stations are and that's how they're being used or are we still in a world where there are secrets of what these broadcasts are really all about you know um you'll you'll never find a country really coming out uh and saying that they're um they have a department that has broadcast number stations but uh people who've worked for these departments who've broadcast them you know, kind of have anonymously come out and said, yeah, these are number stations. And and really recently we've caught um, operatives here in the United States, um, some pretty high profile ones uh, from Cuba. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they caught them, they found a radio and they found the number pad. So when ah. they found the number pad, as long as they, as long as uh, the Cubans had no idea that they had found the number pad, they would keep broadcasting numbers and then we could decode them because we had the, actually had the one-time pad at that one point. Yeah. Um, so they would get sloppy and they would leave their their pads out. So we've discovered pads before. We know that this is how we do it. And and I, personally, I believe that probably most countries have broadcast numbers to their operatives in other countries, their covert operatives. So and what, I think do everybody's you know, done it. What, what has been the content of some of the messages that, that yeah. you've heard about? Just generally. They generally are very simple messages intended, you know, for that one operative or a team. So they're pretty simple messages. They're not going to be very wordy because uh, deciphering it takes a long time. It could take about an hour to decipher a message that's maybe a paragraph long. It just takes so much time to do it. So they tended to be really simple messages that the they knew the operative would understand. So sometimes even if the message was deciphered, if someone else listening could decipher it, it may not mean a lot to them. Yeah, still, um, still code words. Wow, very Cold War. Yeah. Um, it's uh, a, <laughs> it's a romantic. It's a little bit creepy. And we're talking about um, these secret uh, shortwave radio stations that are out there that are just broadcasting 
codes. Um, what else is what, – do we need to talk about anything else that's a little less uh, secretive? What else do people do on shortwave <laughs> that's, um, that has less to do with uh, spying and war? Okay, so I warned you, you're talking about like my favorite topic in the world. So, sure, that's why, that's um, why we brought you on Radio Survivor, Thomas Witherspoon. Your blog or your website is WSWLING.com. That's shortwave listener ing.com. And uh, so, yeah, yeah the, go, go right ahead. Share with us. Yeah, so. Um, so, you know, on my, on my blog, the SWLing post, I usually post things about. Um, international broadcasters that are still out there. So you'll hear, I mean, some of my favorites are like, um, I love Radio Romania International. They, mm. They're they a small station. They have been on the air um, just forever since the Cold War. They kept going after the Cold War. And they have multilingual broadcasts, some great music, and just interesting interesting content. Yeah. And uh, Is this government radio? I like the is, boy- this, is this community radio? What yeah, you- that is... That is a government-supported radio broadcast mm-hmm. uh, through Radio Ra- Romania International. And the BBC World Service is still out there. Right. And the Voice of America, you can hear these on shortwave radio. Um, and then you hear other things, too, like, uh, you know, the Voice of Greece, to me, has some of the most amazing music that's on shortwave. And I personally love kind of the sonic texture of shortwave radio, which is not as kind of high fidelity as FM or any digital, you know, formats. I kind of like hearing what the, I always tell people, I love the sound of music after it's bounced off the ether a few times over the Atlantic Ocean, you know, mm-hmm. um, bounced off the ionosphere. Um, so, you know, there are stations like that I like to listen to. There are a lot of South American stations that we can hear here in North America pretty easily that uh, broadcast mainly to people in remote and rural regions of their country. Uh, but of course, we can hear that. We can listen in. Um, you do find some independent broadcasters and private broadcasters here in the United States. Um, there are two uh, major ones. There, there are a lot that um, sort of have religious affiliation, and so almost all their broadcasts are, are religious mm-hmm. in one way or another. But there are yeah, others like – Yeah, I was like, thinking uh, about – oh, I was thinking about Family Radio because I know they had a massive yes. shortwave project. Um, and does that come to an end? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I really don't follow. Um, I, I usually don't follow those broadcasters as closely um, as I do others. I'm more interested in the smaller broadcasters from other countries. Um, but uh, so you know, Radio Miami International (WRMI) in Okeechobee, Florida, they're the largest private um, broadcaster probably in the world. They definitely are in North America. They sure they have a very large station there. Yes, and you can find them 24-7 on shortwave broadcasting. And you can buy time and, you know, broadcast. You could broadcast your podcast, um, yeah. you know, through I, them. I believe um, that Radio Survivor has uh, – that a fan and listener once uh, gifted our program with uh, some time on um, on one of these shortwave stations. I don't want to just go out of school and say which one uh, because, because we had sure. a, a specific uh, a shortwave uh, – episode so i I think radio survivor has been heard uh, on one of these channels once it would surprise me if it hasn't because uh, i think that would be a great uh medium for it um but yeah so um you know there are private broadcasters out there you also hear lots of and this is one of my favorite uh parts of uh shortwave listening is listening to pirate radio stations um 
you know, FM pirates get a lot of attention here in the United States. You guys have certainly covered, you know, a lot of this uh, for unlicensed stations, yeah. uh, free radio. Well, with FM, you're putting out a signal that can be traced pretty quickly. Like, you know, with the right equipment, you can zero in on where someone is. But with shortwave radio, it's a little harder to do. And and frankly, like, no one's paying attention. Fascinating. There's, there's a pirate... There's a pirate radio watering hole out there on the HF bands. And these are people that I always kind of tell others that they're, they're, it's like they're radio artists that just want to get their message out, you know, um, because there's a, a, a massive barrier of entry to be a shortwave broadcaster. I mean, really, the way the rules are right now, you probably can't broadcast on shortwave for anything under $150,000 if you're starting your own station because of all the requirements, the engineering requirements, the antenna requirements, the power requirements. I think the power, I may be wrong with this and I may hurt your um, accuracy rating, <laughs> but um, but I think the power requirements are about 50,000 watts. And um, so shortwave, you know, shortwave pirates, they can put out a 10 watt signal that can be heard, you know, over the you know, a whole portion of the United States, maybe a little further uh, with a modest piece of equipment. And, and you get to tune into this stuff and it's just fascinating content, you know, classic rock stations, uh, country stations. Uh, There are, um, there are some that are just like wild radio art. Uh, There's one I love called radio strange outpost. And I've got a, I've got some audio of that in um, uh, shortwave radio audio archive. Some of these are just, they just, they're just amazing. There's one called uh, Radio Casablanca that I love. And uh, the, they play World War II era music. And you're listening to it over shortwave from like a pretty small signal. And it just feels so authentic. You're talking about you know, having a television from like the 60s and you turn it on and you're seeing things from the 90s on it. Um, that's one of the great things is uh, when you listen to these over shortwave, they, they sound, they were with their original medium one way or another in yeah. amplitude modulation. And then, um, so, it, and this per- so, so if yeah. you were like a legitimate shortwave broadcaster, I guess, what is the licensing? What are the licensing requirements? What are the rules that these pirates are breaking? I'm just curious. Yeah, because it's international. I mean, you know, how does a Romanian station follow American rules? There are some, so there are some uh, consortiums together, like um, the HFCC, which is a group of HF uh, high frequency broadcasters that meet once a year. They decide on where to to park, you know, on the radio dial, where mm-hmm. uh, their frequency should be, uh, times that they're on the air, that sort of thing, and they try to parse it out and make it this uh, consensus driven way to organize uh, the shortwave bands. They've done this for ages and ages. Um, there are associations with you know, uh, just North American shortwave uh, stations as well. Uh, But like the HFCC and and, uh, some of those guys, they kind of sort out those logistics. But but you're right, you know, um, there are broadcasters out there right now, there especially were during the Cold War, that didn't adhere really to any rules about how loud they could be and how much power they were pumping out. Um, Stations can routinely pump out, you know, 500,000 watts. I Um, I can imagine an arms race... Uh, where where if you had a small country uh, behind the iron curtain as they used to say where couldn't you couldn't you try to blast out voice of america and and broadcast some other weird sound so that people in your country could not hear the propaganda from the west 
Oh, they, I'm, you're throwing me softballs here. Um, <laughs> so, so basically, you know, um, uh, you are. Uh, so basically, the uh, an example of that is China Radio International. Uh, in China, they didn't really want to have a lot of these um, uh, North American broadcasters and things being heard. Um, they kind of wanted to keep content within their country. So what they would do to jam a station was they'd actually play a broadcast on top of a frequency, say, from the Voice of America or the BBC, and um, they would play this thing called Fire Drake, which was this kind of orchestral piece. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> there is a, like a, a cult following for Fire Drake. You know, I, I got really excited one year when I heard it because we actually it wasn't all, always that easy to hear here in Eastern North America because we would actually hear the intended broadcast, the the signal that was being sent to China. Um, because it was louder than their fire drake signal, which was trying to jam it. But there were also jamming stations. They 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 spent lots and lots of money jamming um, uh, stations. North Korea does this today, um, and they'll they'll broadcast this kind of uh, noise, uh, this kind of irritating noise on top of a signal to make it to where people locally will have a hard time hearing it. But there are ways, you know, with the right antennas and, and, you know, there's a lot of ingenuity on the on behalf of the listener that really wants to hear a station. Uh, they can probably still get around a lot of the Fascinating. Uh, the jamming. And and mm-hmm. Thomas Witherspoon, we're talking about the shortwave, uh, we're talking about shortwave radio, distinct from the FM and the AM dial. And um, you're, we started off today's episode of Radio Survivor uh, speaking about the Spectrum Archive, your your website, which is a radio time machine, how much how much uh, archiving of the shortwave radio spectrum are you able to do on on your website, SpectrumArchive.org? So uh, that's actually primarily what I record uh, because I'm a shortwave radio enthusiast. Um, there are other people with on the Radio Spectrum Archive team that do focus more on the AM broadcast band. Um, and some even on the FM band. Um, FM just takes more the, just takes more hard drive space. Is that the problem? Yeah, ex- exponentially more. Okay. Uh, it, it it requires. I mean, almost the I can almost record the entire AM broadcast band with the same amount of space it rec- to record just like one broadcast <laughs> on FM because those signals are so much wider. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the uh, so I record lots of shortwave uh, spectrum. Uh, today and and always have ever since I got into this, and I've got recordings that kind of date back um, to, uh, for example, one of my the stations I really loved was Radio Canada International. Uh, they uh, were based in Sackville, New Brunswick. The the transmitting station was, and they were it announced sometime in early 2012 that they were going off the air. And um, like a lot of other shortwave broadcasters, it is sort of they say you know shortwave broadcasting is sunsetting you know lots less people are listening these days with mobile technologies and that sort of thing so a lot of broadcasters are dropping out and uh, that's a pretty routine thing Mm. but uh, when Canada dropped out you know I fired up my SDR and I made a lot of spectrum recordings so I could go back later and listen to Radio Canada International as it was on the air back then and uh, shortwave recordings are great because the the bandwidth is kind of lower. You can tailor it. The the shortwave bands aren't as wide as a lot of other broadcast bands. So um, and they're usually multiple ones. Um, like the thirty meter band, thirty one meter band, excuse me, uh, is one I listen to a lot. It's a very popular shortwave radio band between about nine point four and ten megahertz, uh, somewhere in there. And I can make an hour recording. 
you know, there and it's only, you know, maybe like four or five, six gigabytes if memory serves. So um, way more manageable. And, uh, and then actually I do a lot of pirate radio recording. In fact, we just passed through the Halloween season, which is like, that is like shortwave pirate heaven. That's when they all come out of the woodwork huh. and, uh, and put a signal on the air. And it's just, it's wonderful stuff. And um, the pirate hole is very narrow. So I can make these really narrow recordings all night long and uh, make spectrum recordings. And in the morning, maybe I have, you know, four or six gigabytes so, of data. So Thomas, so Thomas Witherspoon, if I were to uh, surf over to spectrumarchive.org, would I be able to hear uh, shortwave pir- Halloween pirates? Uh, eventually, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, what we want to do is wait for, uh, we have to reach this capacity with the Internet Archive. And once we do that, we'll post uh, links to a lot of our recordings, some selected recordings. Um, at, at the moment, so uh, there are a few components uh, to a Spectrum recording. There's the file itself, the actual Spectrum recording. And then there's the application which uh, can read the file. And most of those applications tend to be made for Windows PCs. There are some for Macs and for Linux, but most of them on the market are really kind of PC-based. So when you record, the way it is today, when you record or download a recording, you also have to download an application that can read that recording. And there are a couple that are sort of... uh, they can um, handle multiple formats and that sort of thing. But what we'd really like to do in the future is actually make a web-based interface that you could just kind of pull up a a recording um, on the web, use a web-based application and uh, listen to recordings that are in the archive. Yeah. And what we're we're talking about in case people are just joining us is the, the, the idea that this is not a fantasy. This is a real technology that exists that allows you to spin the radio dial and tune in uh, tune in your radio, virtual radio, in this case on your computer, to uh, the past spectrums that have been archived by people like you, Thomas Witherspoon, people who love archiving radio spectrums. And um, it's possible to archive <laughs> all the radio spectrums, but FM uh, would take up more hard drive space, AM takes up a little less, and the shortwave uh, spectrum is the easiest to archive, so it's kind of maybe the the thing that might be most widely available to be able to spin your radio dial as if you were um, someone who had a radio in the past. And uh, these archives um, mm-hmm. are relatively new, but they they could even go back as old as the late 80s. That's correct. That's correct. Um, we have, I'd say that most of the Spectrum recordings have been made since about 2007. Uh, most of the older ones I find with software-defined radios date back to about 2007. So... If there are people who, like, now their interest is really peaked and they're going to run out and buy a software-defined radio and, and they want to start recording things, how can they help you out? How can they contribute to this whole archive project? Well, actually, um, I'm glad you asked that because mm-hmm. uh, I've got a on my website on the SWLing post, um, I actually recently completed this three-part primer on uh, – how to choose and find the right software to find radio. So if someone was looking for one, that would be a nice place to start to figure out what you could get uh, with S-W-L-I-N-G. a recording. com. Yeah, actually. So if you were looking for it, you could just look up um, SWLING, uh, which stands for shortwave listening uh, post P O S T. And then you could just type in SDR primer hmm. uh, for software defined radio primer. And it'll bring up that series uh, to look through. 
and it kind of tells you a little bit more in detail what the costs are, what the what they're capable of, um, what you should be looking for, because you also need an antenna. And um, people who live in urban areas find that, you know, like with the AM broadcast band, shortwave is also very susceptible to being overloaded by urban noise, mm. you know, by um, people's power supplies on their computers and, and uh, you know, TVs and all kinds of things. These all create this... Uh, density of noise that kind of overloads people's receivers. So um, there are antenna ideas for how to overcome that if you live in an urban area. If, like me, you live out in the middle of nowhere, it's you know less of an issue. But, um, but if they make a recording and record it to a hard drive, if they've got a good internet connection and they'd like to upload some to uh, the collection, um, they just need to contact me. Uh, they can email me at thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, at swling.com uh, tell me they're interested and they'd like to upload recordings and then we can set them up with an account and they can upload at will and uh, just make sure cool. that they're indexing it well you know this recording was made on such and such date with this radio at this time in this location so uh, we can go back later and make it easier to index are there certain locations that you feel like you need some some help with and are there parts of the country that where we don't really have many archive recordings? Central Africa. Uh, yeah, actually, um, so in Africa, in Asia, um, especially not, you know, not Japan, uh, but maybe in China, in uh, India, um, one of our archive yeah. team members lives in Sri Lanka, and he's got a lot of recordings uh, that he's uh, working through and uploading. We have people from like, you know, Finland and Japan, but um, mostly remote areas like, you know, all of the Stan countries like uh, uh, Uzbekistan in that area. Um, there's like no one I know of that are actively making spectrum recordings there and uploading them. Uh, we'd love to hear uh, from people living in some of those remote areas uh, because that's very interesting content for us and the rest of the world. How about Antarctica? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> we, do oh, have yeah. <laughs> a, we did have a guest from Antarctica and we talked to her a bit about shortwave radio. So. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah no, I would a, love to have a radio from Antarctica. I know. Wow. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. I'm, I definitely, you know, we'll include some links in the show notes to places where people can hear some of these recordings, uh, because there is a mm -hmm. place on the Internet Archive where that points to everything that you've collected thus far and uploaded, correct? Yes. And um, we do have, so right now with the Internet Archive, it's kind of individual page links at the moment until we have a collection where they'll have like one point two. URL where people can go and then they can see the entire collection. Wow. Uh, right now it's kind of separate individual people with their own pages. But once we have that collection in place, which should happen probably very early next year, um, then we'll have like one link where people can go and they can see um, all of our recordings that we'll be able to organize. And I've got to say, if you say, so if you also, if you're interested in just shortwave radio in general, and you want to hear what's out there, what's been out there in the past. Um, I also run uh, this uh, website called the shortwave radio audio archive, and it re requires nothing special. In fact, it's set up as a podcast. You can download the audio from all of this off air audio if you'd like, but you can listen to it on the webpage and it's indexed very well. You can search it very well and find cold war broadcasters, number stations, pirate radio stations, everything there and kind of get a flavor for what's out there, you know? Great. Thank you. Well, Thomas Witherspoon of SWLing Post, 
and radio uh, lover and anthropologist. Thank you so much for joining us today on Radio Survivor. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, and we're not done. I just wanted to to, to get that recorded for the radio. Um, yeah. But we, I'm, <laughs> I'm not done. All I want with this um, Spectrum Archive that you've built, Thomas Witherspoon, is I wanna mm-hmm. I wanna listen to the FM radio dial of my youth. Um, does that exist? <laughs> can I can I tune in the late '80s FM pop radio dial of you know summer of 1989, summer of 1991 in Los Angeles? California? Uh, wouldn't that be amazing? Okay. Wouldn't that be amazing? I sadly, um, unless I mean, honestly, like someone with the uh, computing resources of like uh, the government, unless yeah. someone like that did those, there were none. You know, uh, the cool thing is there were a lot of audio recordings from uh, local FM markets and things. Um, but uh, Spectrum, yeah, I mean, for example, there's a radio that I'll be uh, reviewing here probably the next few months from an Italian uh, software defined radio manufacturer called Elad and it's called the FDMS three. And this, this radio, one of the really unique things about it is it can be widened. Uh, the, the, the spectrum recordings can be widened to the point that you can record the entire FM broadcast band. The only trouble that really they're running into is just how to pipe out so much data so quickly and, yeah. and then some storage device be able to do something with it that quickly. Yeah. Um, that's what they're really running into with it. So that's the problem with the FM band. Um, it's just too you know, sound in general, rich. really too, too information. Yeah, rich. Soon, soon that won't be the case, you know, uh, right. you know, Storage is getting cheaper, you know, bandwidth gets larger, so, so cool. you know, eventually we'll be there. Jennifer, <laughs> I'm gonna throw one out there, but you should throw one out too. What's your fantasy okay. what's your fantasy radio spectrum archive then of the present? Say in twenty eighteen, my fantasy radio spectrum archive would be like uh, uh December thirty first, you know, uh ten ten PM, December thirty first, eight PM, even in twenty eighteen in a big city, I mean, that's a good night for radio, right? The New Year's broadcast. Uh, that'd be yeah, a fun Yeah, I, mean, I mean, and now you have me thinking about college radio and, you know, 2 a.m. What, what's on the radio at 2 a.m. on any given night? And, All right, so and if, where you, are you- if you can pick one, but you have to pick a location, right? So where, where, what location do you pick for 2 a.m.? <sighs> at 2 a.m.? I guess the Bay Area, right? Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of interesting... I, I I don't know. This is like, you know, there's so much college radio and non-commercial radio that'd be interesting on the FM dial. I mean, shortwave is something I haven't really explored, so I'd be interested in all of the radio. Yeah, but you have to pick um, one. So I, I guess we're, we got to oh pick urban density, right, on the East Coast. So, you know, somewhere yes. in... Maybe like Boston. Yeah, basically the big cities oh, yeah. of... The big cities of the East Coast, uh, Northeast. Yeah, I'll and say, then you know, Southern California Boston be at 2 a.m. Seattle will be pretty interesting. But the antenna has to, you know, the problem with all the good low-power FM stations that are now uh, pumping out such cool community content, um, you have to, you'd have to, you have to travel to hear them each in each of the cities. You know, you couldn't do this in Seattle, Washington, for instance, and hear all the low-power FM community radio stations, which is all I want. So we're still sort of um, the magic. <laughs> There's still You still can't have everything you want. 
Okay. Well, oh. I mean, I do. I do want to hear some <laughs> mysterious. Um, I mean, I really can't stop thinking about Antarctica because <laughs> when we when we did our episode about Antarctica, I, I was really curious um, in my own mind about what one would hear on any given radio dial if you flip the dial in in such a remote place like Antarctica. So that would be, I guess, one of my fantasy radio spectrum recordings would be. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine all that radio. In but, a remote place like Antarctica. But Antarctica is so mm. – it's also so close to so many places that we don't think of as being close together. You know, on the AM dial, you probably – you can pick up every – a lot of a lot of things at the bottom of the southern hemisphere. And yes. you have all of those outposts, you yeah. know, various scientific mm-hmm. outposts in Antarctica. Neat. So okay, so, that, so there's – it's interesting, Jennifer, because I am also like a massive fan of Antarctica. I love Antarctica. And um, every year the BBC does this midwinter broadcast. Uh, so June 21st, which is happens to be my birthday, it's summer up here in North America. Down there, it's their midwinter. And they have a huge party. And all of those Antarctic uh, research stations and um, all those groups, they always have massive parties. And the BBC broadcasts a 30-minute show to them specifically for people in the British Antarctic uh, Survey, uh, the BAS. And it's so much fun listening to it and knowing that they're listening there in Antarctica and all these different outposts. But um, I'm going to blow your mind with something else because you're making me think of it. You were talking about listening in kind of remote areas. Um, There's a network of web-based software-defined radios that you can log into through a web browser. You don't need anything but a web browser and some headphones maybe. And you log in and you can pick a place like almost all continents except for Antarctica are represented in the on the um, map. And you can listen to a live SDR um, as it is in, in a particular location. So I wow. could right now, I could, I can go to like the um, the west coast of Iceland. And there's a, a, a web SDR there. I log into it, put on my headphones, and it gives me a display that looks just like um, a regular software-defined radio. And I can listen to broadcasts there in Iceland. I can listen to all the European broadcasts that they can hear there. I can hear American broadcasts. Um, and usually these are somewhere between like 0 and 30 megahertz. So they tend to be the AM broadcast band. And, and they're live. And long wave in Europe. They're live over And they're the live right then and there. Neat. Yes, wow. they're not and, recorded, but they're live. Yeah, you, you'll have to send so us where, the link so we can share that in the show notes. Yeah, the podcast. That's amazing. Um, that reminds me a bit of Radio Garden, which is, you know, a diff- different. Yeah. It's your it, you're, it's tapping into streams from all over the world where you can click on the globe. Yep. Yeah. And hear a bunch of things. Um, yeah, but that, and that's each, uh, that's the radio. That's each radio station's uh, web web stream, right? So right, which is. Which is cool, but it's it's like neat that there's a radio that you can turn on with this other thing that exactly Thomas- yeah. So you like put your headphones on, and and I did this this past uh, uh, my family like the past three years we've spent a couple months at a time in Quebec, and we go and stay in a condo there, and that condo has lots and lots of noise. So when I'm there with my shortwave radio, um, it's hard to hear things because there's just so much urban noise. So I got out my iPad and I put on my uh, headphones. And I can just like kind of teleport to um, you know Italy or Japan or uh, Australia, New Zealand, mm. on this Kiwi SDR network, 
and I can listen in real time to all these local stations. And it's just so much fun to kind of explore the local stations and um, also the international broadcasters that you can hear there. And uh, this network is actually, it's called the Kiwi SDR network. It's a web, there are a lot of web SDR networks. There's, uh, but the Kiwi one's kind of cool in that um, it's very intuitive. It's easy to use. um, And they're just everywhere, uh, really well represented. And it's sdr.hu. So sdr.hu is the URL. And you can go there and just kind of block out an evening for radio fun. listening like, across qu- the planet. Like, like visiting <laughs> Quebec isn't fun enough with your shortwave radio? Yeah, I know. Well, we love – well, I love Quebec. I, I just love Quebec. I can so, imagine that um, so, so how do you get anything else done when there's all this radio? <laughs> <laughs> It reminds me of my bookshelf. Like, why am I even? Why am I even not reading one of my books? Yeah, yeah. It is. There's just so many interesting things, and you you want to dive into it all. And and it's kind of funny because I I talk to so many um, you know radio geeks like me, and they'll take some trip you know on I don't know like a, a ship you know heading to Asia or something that's really wild and. And of course, they pack a radio with them and they're listening the whole time to see what they can hear because it's almost like um, it makes the trip more real, like more tangible, like you've, right. you've traveled. It must be like for what it is for astronomers to look up into the night sky when they're in the southern hemisphere, when they live in the northern hemisphere. It's like everything's different here, you know. Um, uh, so for me, like I love that that context that radio gives you, that immediate context. Yeah, it would be nice to um, to have unlimited storage to have you know and to to take a road trip with uh sdr i was just i was just thinking about a a a guest on radio survivor from a few months back um quintron uh loves to to drive across the country and listen to local radio uh while he's on tour with his with his band and yeah it's a yeah it's a cliche but it's a it's still like such a it's still real that, um... it, well, it gives you a yeah, it gives you a sense of place. I, we have um, we have satellite radio in one of our cars, and and I feel like it's cheating right. to be on a road trip listening to satellite radio yeah. because I'm missing out on everything that's happening locally. And that's, I mean, that's also yeah. the fantasy, Thomas Witherspoon of the of your <laughs> why I keep going back to it because we here on Radio Survivor uh, more than a few times have been a. A, a dangerously nostalgic for radio prior <laughs> to um, the massive consolidation that sort of wiped out local culture in the 90s. Yes. And yes. Uh, oh, wouldn't it be nice to hear what radio sounded like before um, a handful of corporations, two in particular, sort of um, homogenized what was possible on the radio dial and, and everything was a lot yeah. more local. But not to mention the the other decades of radio um that's now it's my new it's my new real time machine like you know if you <laughs> if you if you had to go if you went back in a time machine but you didn't want to interact with anybody so you wouldn't like uh, crush a butterfly um you could just yeah. hole up in a in a basement somewhere with an sdr um and and yes. record the spectrum that's right from the 60s that would I would I mean I think that's what I'd do. I'd probably go back to like the World War II era. I, I you yeah. know like somewhere between uh, uh, you know before maybe slightly before World War II, um, 
you know, like the 35 into maybe uh, just the post-war years, maybe like 46, 47, um, to be able to go back. I mean, I mean, just like, you know, like a spectrum recording of, I, I used the Pearl Harbor example earlier, but imagine you had a spectrum recording of the AM broadcast band back then. You could hear when stations were getting that news, like as it was live, you know, um, to me, that's, I mean, we radio people, I mean, we, we tend to be a nostalgic bunch. I, um, when I was in Quebec, I was, uh, I was approached by, um, a producer for weekend edition, um, on NPR and they, uh, they were interviewing me about, um, uh, uh, NIST, uh, time station on shortwave out of Fort Collins, Colorado, and also Hawaii, they have two stations. And they were interviewing me asking about it because funding uh, looks like it may be removed for those stations. They were wanting to ask about the impact of it and stuff. Hmm. But um, Scott Simon went on to ask me questions about shortwave radio and said, and I, I, you know, I almost broke out in a cold sweat. He said, are you just being nostalgic? Like, <laughs> I thought... Such I thought, I, I, radio yeah, yeah, of course I'm a nostalgic guy, but you know, like uh, this is still relevant stuff. You know, it's still relevant. But you know, and he was being really kind about it. I mean, he's really, really sweet guy. Um, but it, it was kind of funny because I thought I don't want to undermine my message, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a crazy nostalgic guy. You know, I, um, I go to great lengths here in my house. I, uh, I do stream uh, content over uh, Wi-Fi radios as well. Because there's so many interesting local stations around the world that you can, you were talking about the radio garden that you could pull up and, you know, some station and, you know, literally in Timbuktu that you can listen to on a state on your radio. Well, I, I prefer listening to something that's not full fidelity. I like to listen to it through one of my old vintage radios. And so I'll often pipe it through a little AM transmitter I have here in my house and listen to it on a on a vintage radio just because I like the way it sounds. That's amazing. Me, I love that. So, <laughs> Very so yeah, cool. I'm kind of nostalgic too, <laughs> but um, yeah, that's the, that's the, um, I think the glory of uh, the spectrum archive is it does. I, I wish it could even go back further, but it does give you that, that way to kind of time travel without um, yeah. stopping that butterfly from flapping its rings, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but like, I also realized in the course of today's interview with you that like, yes, I wish, oh, how I wish that we could hear the radio from, from the, from the past that hasn't been archived, but there are still amazing things happening on the radio now. And so like, that's why I asked Jennifer to pick a time and place. Cause, um, Maybe it's not impossible, right, for Radio Survivor to sort of, uh, you know, maybe maybe this is something that Matthew Lassar would would want to do, and he can get himself. Uh, I'm sure that uh, <laughs> Paul Reese Mandel um, is in the market now for a software-defined radio as soon as he finds out uh, just how available they are. You know, he's in he's in Brazil right now, and I'm sure he brought a radio with wow. him. And I don't want to put him on the hook here with the podcast listeners. I don't want to promise that he's going to bring back. <laughs> Um, right <laughs> audio from Brazil but I think he might and um, well and and, and you know as, as you're mentioning that I'm, I'm reminded of, of dial scans that right. that Paul has done and that we have done love those dial yeah. scans. So that's sort of like it's sort of a poor person's radio spectrum recording where you are in a different place and you just spin the dial for a little bit yeah yeah yeah, we have some of those in the shortwave radio audio archive. We actually have in the. It's not all shortwave stuff. There's some AM broadcast band stuff, but um, but we have a you know a couple of band scans that are in there, and 
I, I love those too. I love just kind of following along with someone as they're traveling across the dial in some place. Um, it's, uh, oh, it's, it's fascinating, especially when you're traveling to some little remote area. And, and like you said, Antarctica, that is to me, that is just like the, I wish I had some skill that they needed there, but I'm pretty sure they're not looking for a spectrum archivist or, um, you know, a guy who's good at reading books and, um, <laughs> you know, like I probably don't have the right skill set to, to go down there, but I, I kind of fantasize about it. I, I think, um, and, and you know, one of my very favorite stations to try to log, um, uh, when I'm doing DXing, when I'm trying to listen to distant stations is LRA 36, which is the Argentinian, um, Antarctic station, they actually have like a one, it's either, I think it's a 1000 watt AM station that broadcasts from their little Antarctic station. Hmm. And, um, it's, it is extremely difficult to, uh, hear here in North America, but I've got a fairly large antenna and I make spectrum recordings, really narrow ones, just right around that frequency. And this is a cool thing about doing a really narrow spectrum recording. If there's something you really want to hear, some SDRs allow you to narrow it to like 20 kilohertz, and that's not that much bigger than making an audio file. But wow. instead of just getting the audio, you know, which is maybe at one setting, and like let's say the a lot of these broadcasters like this, the small ones, they may drift off frequency a little bit. You know, it could get colder and or something happen. And if you're locked in with an audio recording and they drift off frequency, then you're recording them off frequency if you're if it's unattended. But uh, with a spectrum recording, you can just move the frequency a little bit, you know, because you've got it all there. And I've, I've made recordings of them before that were really faint, but that is like, uh, that's a station that I really want to work. I just, I love Antarctica. Um. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending all this time with us today, Thomas. I, I loved hearing about your radio time machine. Well, hopefully I haven't put anyone to sleep, but this is, uh, it was a real pleasure for me. I, I've been a big follower, especially of your blog at Radio Survivor for years and years and years. You've been there forever, and I love the, the, the flag that you carry, and uh, I've sent many, many people there. So um, I'm sure we'll meet up sometime at a radio gathering. Well, that was an amazing conversation with Thomas Witherspoon, the founder and curator of the Radio Spectrum Archive, the founder and curator of the Shortwave Audio Archive, and the primary contributor to the SWLing Post, a shortwave enthusiast, time machine creator. And, yeah, honorary you know, radio survivor, if I may start handing out that title. Fellow radio yeah. geek. Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, this there was this series I did on Radio Survivor that I abandoned long ago where I uh, I wrote about radio obsessives, and he definitely would have been part of that <laughs> that series had yes. it continued. Well, um, it has continued here on the radio show, Jennifer, so don't worry. It's true. We're, we're moving yes, forward. But- and speaking of radio obsessives, you are – oh, I should mention that links to everything that we talked about in today's interview are in the show notes for radiosurvivor.com, as well as um, – you know, you you in the radio audience, you may have just heard uh, roughly an hour long interview, but we sort of um, we kept going. And so, if you would like to hear a longer discussion with Thomas Witherspoon, uh, go ahead and and swing on over to the website radiosurvivor.com and listen to the podcast. Um, and Jennifer, and, and perhaps perhaps in the podcast version, we talked about you know our fantasy of what we might record if we were going to yeah. record the radio spectrum, <laughs> and and that has me thinking about this week, uh, Thanksgiving, and. 
that would be interesting to record the radio spectrum on Thanksgiving in the United States because it's become a tradition now that Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant is played on Thanksgiving Day on radio stations across the land. Mm-hmm. So so that would be a fascinating thing if we had recordings of what the dial sounded like and how many stations were playing Alice's Restaurant. And every year I write up a guide that is, you know, an incomplete list, but a list of stations that are planning to play this 18 plus minute epic that was inspired by events that happened on Thanksgiving in 1965. So Alice's Restaurant, kind of a staple of a lot of classic rock stations, uh, some college and community stations will play that at some point on Thanksgiving yeah. or, or thereabouts. So if and- you want to check out the most comprehensive available online list of which stations are planning to play Alice's Restaurant and where, you can go to RadioSurvivor.com to read Jennifer's post. Yep. Well, uh, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And thank you again to our guest, Thomas Witherspoon. And if you have any uh, feedback that you would like to share or stories about your love of radio or your, um, if you could like draft a fantasy radio spectrum archive of any time or place, uh, what would that be? Go ahead and email us podcast at radiosurvivor.com. My name is Eric Klein. Jennifer Waits was also here on today's show. And thank you so much to everyone for listening. Happy Thanksgiving.